dear listeners, welcome to the EdTech Podcast, where we aim to improve the dialogue between ed and tech for better innovation and impact. This week, a huge congratulations to all of the team at Busu, a UK-based language learning platform, which has been acquired for €385 million by Chegg. We've been lucky enough to have one of the co-founders of Busu, Bernard, on the show previously, when I interviewed him in Beijing about AI and EdTech. And many of you will know Kirsten, who's also at Busu and considered one of the stalwarts of UK EdTech and very fun and lovely to boot too. So I'm so pleased for all of the team and this is a great thing also for UK EdTech generally. We're hoping to get some of the Busu team on the show in the new year to get the inside story on how all of that went down. And I hear that there may be more exciting EdTech news coming down the line for the UK sector. So do watch this space. What else? A huge thank you to Wisdom App, which alerted us to the fact that the EdTech podcast is considered to be in the top 2% of all the podcasts in the world. I'm still establishing the absolute metrics of all of this, but I think that audience downloads and the longevity of our show have a part to play. So thank you to Wisdom App. And if that is up your street and you or someone you know is into podcasting, then I'm also finalising my next course on how to commercialise a podcast. There were 900,000 podcasts launched in 2020 and so many of them suffer from pod fade after a bit. So I'm on a mission to help all those creators keep cash positive and to keep their shows going. So if that sounds of interest to anyone, please do share around. The course is all online and self-paced and I'll share the link in the show notes. Uh, And it may be of interest to any university or further education college journalism courses too. What else? What else? Uh, A new report came out this week from the Tony Blair Institute called uh, Tech Inclusive Education, a World Class System for Every Child. And the report shows that an additional 272 million new school places will be needed each year globally to achieve the UN's uh, Sustainable Development Goal number four of universal access to primary and secondary education. And the Institute advocates for using a minimum viable education system framework to pave the way for technology to radically improve access to high quality formal education. So some of the ideas they go on to talk about are introducing a lifelong digital learner ID issued at the start of compulsory education to give students control over their data and to improve accountability for schools and ed tech providers and build a comprehensive picture of a child's learning to also reorganise classrooms into cohorts and transform teaching career paths, providing students with access to varied learning activities and in-person support and allowing trainee teachers to draw on the subject knowledge of more experienced colleagues as they work in teams and to break the link between geography and educational opportunities and expand choice for pupils and parents by putting in place infrastructure and regulation for in-person remote schooling. And this is something that I'm personally very interested in and passionate about and working on at the moment in terms of rural and coastal communities. So it's all pretty cool and we hope to get them on the show at some point. Not sure whether that will be Tony himself or one of the team Uh, but yeah very much looking forward to that. A big shout out to all the technology engineering creativity peeps down at Space uh, Space in Newquay last night who ran another excellent event and to crowdfunders who are based down there and supported 
As mentioned, I'm working on a new venture, which I hope to reveal in the new year. And the group is instrumental in supporting female founders. Now, on to this week's show. This is the last episode before we wrap this year. We'll be back in January with author James Plunkett as our guest on the Voctech podcast series with UFI. And James's book, End State, is a Guardian political book of the year. And James has some excellent insights on lifelong learning through his research and work at Citizens Advice as the Executive Director for Design, Data and Technology Policy and Advocacy and his past work at both the Young Foundation and the Resolution Foundation. So I'm very much looking forward to that recording. So, dear listeners, that just leaves me to say thank you for another barnstorming year of the EdTech podcast. Your support is what makes working on the show excellent and each edit that we go through, totally worth it. So keep sending your feedback and I'll keep digging out top guests to make it worth listening in. Thank you also to this year's sponsors and media partners as well, without which we couldn't do any of this. And whatever your way of spending the holidays, have a great break. And if you fancy it, Merry Christmas. But now, get on with it, I hear you say. What's in this week's episode? Well, here's our recording for Reimagine Education Conference 2021. And this session is with Lumina Foundation and Lambda School, now known as the Bloom Institute of Technology, on pioneering new education models. That's it. Here we go. Welcome everyone uh, to this session uh, for Reimagine Education, which is looking at pioneering education models. A quick intro to our guests who we have uh, today. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Courtney Brown, who is Vice President for Impact and Planning at the Lumina Foundation. Welcome. Uh, The Lumina Foundation is an independent private foundation committed to making opportunities for learning beyond high school available to all. With about 1.4 billion US dollars in assets and grants already allocated of over 250 million. Um, Dr. Courtney says the biggest misunderstanding in higher education is who the students are. Most people believe those uh, who are in higher education are 18 to 21, fresh out of secondary school. The reality, at least in the US, is almost 40% of today's students are over 25 and financially independent from their parents, and many are employed full time. Uh, And I had a quick check, uh, Courtney, and uh, in the UK, the latest data was 2019 to 2020. But again, there were about 37% of all undergraduate entrants who were over 21 years of age. So slightly earlier, but still, um, you know, uh, perhaps slightly different to what we would imagine. And just finally, the Lumina Foundation works to ensure that 60% of adults will have a college degree, certificate, industry certification or other credential or value by 2025. The next guest is Austin Allred, who is co-founder and CEO of Lambda School. Uh, Lambda School is an online coding and technical education program with an income sharing agreement model in which students pay tuition only after acquiring a job. Um, of a Wall Street Journal article that stated that 28% of bachelor's degrees do not have a net positive return and that more than a quarter of students are in programmes that aren't worth the costs, Austin said it's time to fix that. 
Uh, Lambda grads are hired by companies of all sizes, including the Fortune 100 and the world's top startups, including companies like Google, Microsoft and Walmart. So welcome again, Austin and Courtney. So this session is all about exploring new partnerships and models which are challenging the status quo for the benefit of all. So Courtney, we've got relatively short time. Um, I'll jump straight in with you. Um, you have deep insight at Lumina Foundation into adult learning attainment across the whole of the US. So I've been digging around in your data. It's really fascinating how you've um, kind of compiled that and the transparency um, that gives us all. And this shows who's benefiting and who's missing out. What's that research showing you? And with all this data, what are you actually investing in with Lumina Foundation as well? So which new models are piquing your interest? So, yes, at Lumina, we concentrate all of our efforts on ensuring adults, especially uh, adults of color, have access to programs that lead to meaningful credentials, that they have financial and non-financial supports along the way to ensure their success, and that the credentials they earn lead to good jobs, higher pay, greater opportunity to learn and serve others. Um, and at this point, uh, especially in the US, but, but across the globe, um, even before the pandemic, uh, higher education is in crisis uh, for a number of reasons. And, and I think there, there are a few issues that we need to address uh, to ensure that more people have access to post-secondary education. There's a supply uh, issue. There's a demand issue, and we needed to have more opportunities um, to increase access. So let me just touch on each of those fairly quickly. Uh, as far as the supply issue, in the last 10 years in just the U.S., capacity has grown 26%. So that includes more institutions, more dorm rooms, more labs uh, by 26%. At the same time, uh, demand, so those who are enrolling, has only grown by 3%. So our current system, our current higher ed system in the U.S. is functioning at only at about 75%, leaving roughly 5 million empty seats a year. And what that means is this underutilization means that we have empty classrooms, empty labs, empty beds, and those fixed costs Mm -hmm. have to be shared by fewer and fewer students every year. A recent uh, report, research report we just did with EY Parthenon shows that that's the equivalent of about 50 billion US dollars a year that we are, we are wasting on this, this mismatch between supply and demand. So one of the things that we have to address is the supply. Um, uh, institutions are going to have to get brave. They're going to have to figure out who needs to merge? Who needs to partner? And uh, unfortunately, who needs to close because they're they're not they're no longer serving students. They they don't have they have too much capacity to serve those students. Secondly, we have to increase demand. Um, currently, there is a question about is higher ed even worth it? Um, you quoted some some statistics and talked about some of Austin's work that you know people are are completing and not having a credential of value. Uh, that could not be further from the truth. Data shows us that in the aggregate, people that have credentials of value, post-secondary credentials of, of value, have better lives, they make more um, money and have the better jobs than those without a post-secondary credential. So we need to change that narrative. We also need to make sure that we are serving today's students. As you mentioned, uh, uh, there are a lot of students 
who are over 25, who work full time, who have their own children, their own dependents. Yet our current system does not serve those students. Uh, and finally, we need to open up new funding models uh, for, for students to find other ways um, that they are actually able to access this increasing cost with post-secondary education. So even once we figure out that supply demand, get that equalized, we still need to find uh, new opportunities to both help students financially and with some of the non-financial issues that they are dealing with. That's a fantastic breakdown of the, you know, the issues and how you're identifying what needs fixing. Um, if I understand correctly, Lumina Foundation also invests in some of those different areas. Are there any particular models that are, are kind of more attractive to your mission than others? Yeah, so some of the funding issues that we think about is uh, the difference between merit-based aid and need-based aid. So a number of the states in the U.S., I think almost 23 states, still focus all their funding on merit-based aid, uh, academic types aid, rather than need-based aid. Uh, and so we'd like to see that flipped, that it should be primarily about need-based aid. Um, we'd also like to see that they are broadening who has access to aid. Um, currently, the, most of the systems focus on traditional age students. So it depends on how many years uh, following secondary school. Uh, if you're not directly out of secondary school, you don't have access mm -hmm. to aid. Uh, if you're not a full-time student, you don't have access to aid. If you don't live on the campus, you don't have access to full-time aid. And that's leaving behind tens of millions of current students and future students who don't have access uh, to aid to actually uh, participate in post-secondary education. Austin, I wondered if you had um, any thoughts on the discussion around credentialing and, and the sort of value associated with uh, either traditional forms of credentialing and, and new forms of credentialing as well. I view it broadly as if you look at higher education as a whole, that is a very, very broad bucket. Um, I think what Courtney alluded to is correct, that by and large, the students who enter into higher education and get a credential are better off um, by a lot. Um, but what we've seen is actually also what Courtney alluded to, that there are some instances where the costs have become so high and the return is low. In some circumstances, um, I think the Wall Street Journal just published uh, a report on, I believe it was a master's program at USC where the median amount of debt a student took out was $112,000 and the median salary was something like $52,000. You know, so we view part of the problem is the incentive misalignment, especially in the United States. Um, so USC in that instance suffers zero consequences of that being the case. And their only incentive is to enroll more and more students into that very expensive program um, and, you know, I have nothing against a master's in social work per se, but I would argue, you know, going $112,000 in debt in order to do so is, is not a healthy uh, decision. So we think that schools should be more aligned with the incentives of the students. And we built our financing model around that. So, uh, you know, probably what Lambda School is most well known for is, you know, we literally don't get paid tuition unless our students get a high paying job on the other side. 
And that, you know, that focuses what we do as a school that focuses, you know, how much we focus on outcomes. Um, I don't think every program should be that way. And I don't think every school should be that way. But for a for a subset of the students who are you know, looking into post-secondary education, that is, you know, the perfect solution. If you zoom out more broadly, what I think, you know, needs to happen is there are programs and institutions that don't make as much sense for students, and there are those that make a lot of sense for students. I think we need to do a better job of, at a minimum, helping students understand what that looks like. Um, And, you know, I view it as there's kind of a missing trade school, vocational school system in the United States. It exists in a lot of other countries. And, you know, going to four years of a university and, you know, taking out $100,000 plus in student loans is not the right solution for every student. And we need to be cognizant of that and provide more appropriate solutions for what, what a student is actually looking for. Yeah, that's really interesting. Universities aren't just one size fits all. Some are more focused on research. Some are larger than others. Um, and students are going there for a variety of reasons. Um, not not all employer aligned, but some are. I guess this session is all about educational models. And so I sort of having a think about the different models that, like you say, have been developing since pre-pandemic. So there's things like uh, the income sharing agreements and online boot camps that that um, you're involved with with Lambda, um, education as a benefit partnerships between colleges and employers like Guild Education, edutainment like Masterclass or spoken word audio and podcasts like Blinkist. And then services are now popping up more and more around digital learning nomads. So understanding the social benefits of learning in a group, but perhaps in quite a desirable location. And obviously all of this comes with the caveat of who can access these these models. But um I guess uh, my question to you, Austin, uh, would be what what are the main benefits for these new educational models and are there any drawbacks or teething pains as well? Yeah, I think, you know, broadly, at least in the United States, we have looked at the four-year university for an 18-year-old as the only solution for higher education. Um, and, you know, Courtney and alluded to this in, in some of the research, and I think you did as well, Sophie, that you know, the median student at Lambda School is 31 years old um, from an age standpoint. And there's, there's a kind of a bell curve around that. Um, the university system was not built to serve 31, 32-year-old learners in most instances. And I think, you know, there is a misunderstanding of who is attending universities. I fully, fully agree with um, what, what you spoke about there. What we are broadly seeing is an unbundling of the university to where some schools are focused more on certain things. And and really what I hope it results in is a proliferation of options for a student where, you know, for, for one student, four years at a research institution when you're 18 is exactly what they want. Um, for some institutions, you know, we're, we're really focused on providing the most direct, lowest risk path to a, a higher income that we can provide. Um, you know, that's not the goal of every student who enters a university. There are many, many different things that a university offers that we don't. Um, so my hope is that a student can more exactly match what their needs are with what the offerings are over time, instead of looking at everything as this monolithic one way to do everything four years when you're 18 years old institution. Um, I, I think that's, 
that's pretty healthy. And I think I expect that to, to continue in the future. When we started out in 2016, 2017, we were fully online. And the, at the time, you know, we would encounter widespread beliefs that literally you could not teach people certain things online. But we also found that done the right way and with the right structure, you can have you know, almost all of the benefit. Obviously, if you want to go to parties and go to social events and you know, meet people, we, we do have you know, meetups for our students, but we're not the right place to go to if you're looking to primarily socialize. The, the internet experienced this broadly. If you think about you know, shopping in the mid 90s, there was a lot that the internet was lacking and people couldn't imagine you know, not going into a bookstore um, or not going into a clothing store. And as, as online solutions get better, you can you know, replicate more and more of that or replace more and more of that. Um, and there's still going to be things that you may want to do in person over time, and we may not be the best solution for those things. I think, I think the most important thing for education is acknowledging when and where that's the case. You know, you've, you've got different credentialing systems out there. In the past, people have stressed quite a lot about, you know, how, how those stack up and whether you're, you know, measuring apples and apples. Um, what, what's your kind of take on that in terms of value that we're getting out of our education? Yeah, I think one of the first things we need to focus on is transparency, transparency of all of these credentials. I, I would say the four-year and two-year institutions in the U.S. have always had a little bit more scrutiny um, because they have had to be um, uh, evaluated uh, and accredited on a regular basis. Uh, not that all of them are, are great, but uh, there is a little bit more transparency there. The, the short-term credentials, uh, the boot camps and whatnot, are, live in a little bit more of a black box. They may be provided by an employer, by a for-profit, and so we don't have apple-to-apple -apple type of data. So we're really trying to uncover that so that we can make sure that students, because this should be a student-centered world, that they have access to, you know, if I go get that credential, if I go get that master's in social work at USC, what's it going to cost me? And what, what kind of salary can I expect coming out the other side? And are there people that look like me or have my experiences that actually participate there also? So we need more transparency. So at least people know what they're getting um, when they, they go, you know, buy something. For everything else that we purchase, we have these type of data. If I want to fly from here to London, I can look at all my opportunities and pay anywhere from $200 to probably $300,000 and knowing how long it's going to take me, how often they're on time, um, those sort of things. We don't have any of that in, in higher education. So we need more transparency. We developed something called the credential engine that is beginning to pull some of this information together from all types of credential, every credential that, that exists in the U.S., um, right now. So that's one of the, the first things that we need to do. And, you know, I, I think that the pandemic has given us an opportunity to refine, improve um, the virtual learning experience. And I think um, many four-year and two-year institutions who had never done it, um, you know, dove in and I applaud them for for giving it a try um, and, and, and working to improve that. that. Um, I hope that they don't go right back to everything has to be in person. I hope they continue to innovate um, and, and work on that. I also hope that our option won't be that you're either virtual or in person. Uh, we already have in the US a huge uh, divide between the haves and the have nots. 
um, and it's getting worse and worse. And a lot of that is defined by who has access to higher uh, education, post-secondary education, and who does not. What I would hate to see is the have-nots only have access to, to virtual education and the haves have uh, in-person education and all those things that happen kind of not, maybe not outside of the classroom, it, you know, beyond the parties and whatnot, but it's the conversations that take place at the end of the class. It's the conversations that take place as you're walking into the class or, or those sort of things. So we want to make sure that people have the opportunity to access education in all kinds of different ways and have access to mentoring and guided pathways and other things to help them get on track and stay on track. It's really interesting listening to you talk about that. It seems like there's a shift from the university defining educational experiences, and obviously that's diversified out into these different models, whereas now there's a much stronger sort of uh, student or learner voice uh, in terms of being a consumer in all of this. So, um, you know, we we saw um, over the last 18 months that students taking universities to court because of um, their experiences online and you know there's 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 perhaps this greater scrutiny of the financial value of our educational experiences as well and uh, I know that um, you know other educational models are also under scrutiny and I guess is this partly because we're evolving out of sort of this one model uh, where you know you paid a certain amount and now there are many different models, many different fees, uh, many different experiences of, of, of what value is, but, but perhaps we're quite new in this system as well. I don't, I don't know if anyone had any thoughts on sort of new educational models, value and sort of consumer voice and all of that as well. Yeah, I think um, what, what you referenced earlier is, is um, in terms of making sure students have, you know, apples to apples comparisons of what what to expect, um, what outcomes look like, um, all of that stuff. You know, we spend a ton of time and money and effort. And actually, yesterday, um, just put out another you know annual outcomes report, so students can look at that and can see um, what salary expectations are. They can see what time to graduation looks like. We have a relatively flexible model for time to graduation. They can see what job titles look like, um, and we also put out a diversity report. That's you know what. What does our student body look like? Where are they coming from? What are their backgrounds? Um, and you know, you can map those two together. Um, I think the best thing that educational institutions can do to aid in that is, is to produce data. Um, I, I understand that it's a very difficult and complex thing to do. Um, and it, you know, it's it's far more difficult than people would expect to just know where your alumni are working and how much they're making, even for us, where that's the entire focus of our program. But I think um, the best thing we can all do is get more data, more clarity and more, more options to, to all of the students. I agree. Another thing we need to do is ensure that there's stackability with the types of different types of credentials. So oftentimes a short-term credential is a fabulous and it could be one-stop shopping that that short-term credential is going to lead to a lifetime of, um, you know, great job and, and good salary. But oftentimes you need to stack that. And so we need to have uh, a, a more clarity about what is what those skills are. I think, Austin, you raised you know, the importance of skills, understanding what those competencies are and skills are that are within that credential so that it can stack to the next credential. So no one should have a dead end. 
Um, you know, we, we are constantly in the future going to need to upskill, reskill, skill. Um, nothing that we have right now is going to lead us through a lifetime job where we don't have to constantly learn. And so being able to stack on what we know and continue to learn is going to be absolutely essential. And that's up to institutions of, of post-secondary learning to be able to unpack that and, and say, you know, here are the skills and competencies that you will be getting from these credentials. And as ambassadors or enthusiasts for for new models of learning, which you know increase accessibility and and and, and access to developing these skills, are there any sort of um, limitations to some of these models being rolled out more quickly? So. I'm thinking of examples here in the UK where perhaps the regulation or the sort of state funding um, of some of these educational models, the the, the existing legacy systems don't quite match up with the innovations that are happening. So I just wondered what your experience was and, and, and what you'd like to see more of in terms of creating a fertile ground for quality new education as well. I have a lot of thoughts, um, <laughs> some which I can share, some which I cannot. Um, but yeah, certainly for us, you know, where, you know, we have a giant compliance team that is focused on just being in compliance with every state, because every state has completely different regulatory environment for higher education. And many of the laws did not contemplate online being a thing. Um, they're, you know, the, there are very explicit laws around, you know, how many students are in a classroom and what exactly their, you know, instructor is like. And, you know, in, in an online world, so much of that is so, you know, even in when you're trying to comply with the laws, you talk to the regulators and the regulators don't know, you know, how to adjust that law. For example, you know, in some states, it there are laws around what you can teach across state lines for from one state to another that were written to to solve for a tax avoidance problem or a student saying, you know, I am an in-state student in one state versus another. Um, and so we have to comply with those because we are teaching in some instances from one, well, really every instance from one state into another. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, we have, there are states where we have filing cabinets full of student data um, despite the fact that we don't have an employee in that state. So we have to go rent an office and, you know, put a filing cabinet that is under lock and key. And so the, the well-meaning regulation of, hey, you need to keep your student data available, but it needs to be locked down. You know, obviously that's written for an analog world. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's difficult to do, but my call would be for regulators to, to take a look at the, the regulations for education and see, does this make sense in 2021? Or is this a law that's still on the books from 1970 when, you know, a lot of what we're doing was literally not an option. Um, and I think, you know, Lambda School is lucky that we're, you know, big enough and well-funded enough that we can do a lot of that. But for a lot of schools, I mean, they're entire states, you just have to not teach in um, because the compliance cost of you know teaching students in that state is so high, um, so I think that's the, the most glaringly obvious thing to to solve for when it when it comes to how can we enable new education models. So, Sophie, I would also say, I mean, there are so many different uh, groups coming on and, and trying to to sell their credentials. 
Uh, and, and that's concerning. It's concerning to me for the students who are paying for them and not getting a value from those, uh, not getting either complete, being able to complete their credential or getting a credential of value. So we need to pay attention to that. And again, that goes back to the transparency. What is this credential? Because it sounds really good when you get a postcard for it and they're gonna give you a free laptop um, and it only costs $50 to enroll for your first class. Um, you know, once you sign, mm. lots of things change. Um, so we need to pay attention to that. We also need to make sure that these credentials are aligned with employment needs, um, not just for the next six months, but but beyond that. And so we, you know, not that we need a crystal ball, but we need to have a little bit more thinking about the future and what kinds of skills are going to be needed in the future so that individuals are getting credentials that are not going to just end uh, in six months, their employment's not going to end, that that they can have have a greater lifetime with those. I suppose if you were to 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 leave this session and and to leave uh, anyone who's watching back or, or listening in, um, you know, what, what would you like to leave with our with our listeners to to kind of get them thinking uh, deeply on this subject? So I'll start. So I think one of the things that people need to um, acquaint themselves with, no matter where you are, are who today's students are. So who actually are the people that are attending post secondary education, whether it is at a university for your kind of degree or whether it's a boot camp or what, what it is, um, to understand that, to dispel the myth, myth that they're all 18 or 19 years old and their parents are paying. Uh, so I think that's that's really important. In the US, we have information on today's student on our, our website, Lumina Foundation. Uh, and I think that's important for policymakers, universities, colleges, any post-secondary provider to understand who you're supposed to be serving. Uh, and then I would say the role of colleges is to begin to use that information, and they're going to have to adapt. They're going to have to change. Um, I, I'm not saying they're all going to go away, but in order to survive, you're going to have to figure out how to serve adults, how to serve the credentials of value that, that Austin is mentioning, and you were talking about, Sophie, um, because everyone doesn't need a, maybe a four-year philosophy degree. Maybe they need a, a short-term credential that can then build on uh, into a, a four-year degree, or maybe they need a four-year degree, and then they're going to need to top it off with a certificate or a certification afterwards. So colleges of tomorrow are going to have to be more adaptable and figure out what students need, not um, at one point in time, but throughout their lifetime and figure out how to serve them better. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, I think the answer was broadly correct. Um, understand student needs better and adapt. I think um, a lot of colleges have been lucky enough to be in a world where with, you know, expanding populations and expanding, you know, if you look compared to the 80s, more and more students going to college, you didn't really have to, to you didn't have to adapt for a long time. And I think um, the role of higher education is shifting somewhat. Uh, the funding will shift, the population demographics will shift. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, the needs of the students will shift. Um, and so I think that the schools that are most responsive to the needs of the student and the needs of the market are those that, that will win. Um, and you know, I, I don't know that every school is going to be able to make that transition. Um, you know, for a lot of colleges, that's a, an incredibly difficult transition and, you know, um, one that has not had to have been made for a very long time. Um, but I, you know, I think at the end of the day, 
schools are going to come out stronger from this. Educations are going to be stronger. Um, students will be better served now than they, they have been in the past. And I, I expect that trend to, to continue. Um, so I'm, I'm actually very optimistic um, for, the, for the schools that are willing to, that, that are figuring out how to become agile and respond to student needs. Um, I think they're in a great spot. Well, thank you both so much for your time. If people want to go and find out more, so Lumina Foundation, Lambda School, thank you again for sharing your insights and uh, yeah, look forward to sharing this. That's the end of this week's episode. As always, a huge thank you to all of my guests, Reimagine Education, for putting on an excellent event, and to all of you for listening in. If you're feeling the season of goodwill, go and give us a rate and review, or contact us about sponsorship in 2021. Whatever you do over this time before 2022, hope that you get to spend some quality time with friends and family. And the EdTech Podcast will be back in 2022. See you then. Bye-bye.